As you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, there was a question that a young woman had, a noble woman in the Roman Empire, and so she wrote to the great Augustine, and she wanted to know if she was praying properly, if she was praying in accordance to God's will. Her name was Proba. Augustine's approach was not what or how, uh, the how of prayer, but a particular kind of person. He wasn't so concerned about the what or the how. He was concerned about the who, you, the one who is praying. And Augustine writes this to her. And this is a woman of noble class. She is the upper crust of Roman society, and he says to her, you must account yourself desolate in this world, however great prosperity, the prosperity of your lot may be. Uh, that is an interesting way for, to address someone who's asking how to pray. And he's saying to her, you must become desolate. You must become what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You must be low in order to lift your eyes up. And of course, I do believe this prayer and other prayers really get at the heart of that reality, that we must become desolate. Because desolate, needy people pray. Well, let's go to God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to play standing, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who, is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you, what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray, O our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless our time in your Word, and that by your Spirit, you would minister to us to be men and women who hunger and thirst for the living God, and thus we hunger and thirst to pray as men and women in a desert seeking the spring of life, the well of life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is concerned with prayer. 
In fact, as we talked about this evening, there's the primacy of preaching the Word of God or teaching the Word of God, the Gospel. And there, of course, the response to God's Word as He speaks to us is that we respond to Him. Prayer. God speaks to us through His Word. We respond to Him in prayer. This is a wonderful way of knowing and loving God, isn't it? Hearing from God, responding to God in prayer, hearing from God, responding to God in prayer. And that's often why the early church instructed the members of the congregation to pray the Psalter, to pray the 150 Psalms. Let the Word of God be the springboard of your prayers. So you hear from God and then respond to God in prayer. This knowing and loving God in the dance of His voice in His Word and our response to Him in prayer. And thus, it is of primacy for the church that we pray. We learn from Hebrews chapter 5, 7 about the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverent submission. I submit to you, this is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were hearing that, and you most likely went to the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't you? It sounds exactly like the Garden of Gethsemane, but it does appear that he continued to pray like this throughout his ministry on earth. His over three years of ministry upon earth. And what is Jesus' pattern of prayer? This pattern that he often had in really, I would say, a quite a busy ministry life. I mean, the crowds are weighing upon him. Everybody wants to touch him. I mean, they're coming far and wide to see the miracle man, that wondrous worker, that great preacher, that one who might be the one Moses spoke about. Ah, the Messiah. That might be him. Everybody was yearning for a Messiah. Here he is. He's come to town. He's from Nazareth, not a very important city, but he sure does great things. And he's a great man. And so they came. And Jesus' pattern we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 31, is that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, when everybody was exhausted and asleep, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out to a solitary place where he prayed. It seems like Jesus did this a lot as he slipped away from the crowds, slipped away from a busy ministry schedule, slipped away from the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, he had to separate from him because they wanted to make him king. And so he went up into a mountain, didn't he? To pray. To be with who? To be with who? Who are you with when you pray? Aren't you with God? Aren't you communing with the Almighty? With your Father in heaven? That's the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wanting to be near His heavenly Father in prayer. Whether that is in solitary places early in the morning on a mountaintop or in the middle of the night, or praying all night long, in fact, before he selects the, well, the disciples to be his witnesses, two by two, into Israel. We see the Lord Jesus Christ praying. And Jesus' purpose in prayer? Well, obviously, to commune with his heavenly Father. But I think we need to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll find that in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, if your Bibles are open, if they're not, that is fine as well. 
You can always listen. But Jesus' purpose in prayer in that, it, this night, this night in which he is being prepared for the cross that is before him, his sacrificial death upon the cross and its brutalities. And Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, that special place where the disciples hung out with Jesus often in the night. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, a stone's throw away his bleeding drops of blood coming through his skin. So immense is the suffering. And he's wrestling, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will, thy will be done. Hadn't he instructed the disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And here, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the most dire moment in his ministry and on earth, is praying, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. But this whole moment is for our instruction, isn't it? It's, it's not just an showing us how much Jesus suffered. It's showing that. But it's also showing the need for us. You see the application of Jesus when he comes to the gentleman. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Prayer is God's means of increasing our love for Him so as not to fall into temptation. That's what I'm, I'm going to say again. Prayer is God's means of increasing our love for Him so as not to fall into temptation. Just as His Word spoken to us is God's means to do the same thing. Greater our love for God becomes the more likely we are to resist the devil and flee from him. I guarantee you, if you're not praying, you're not fleeing. If you are not praying, you are not fleeing, because if you're not praying, you're not reading about the living God. You're not equipping yourself with the armor which you put on by prayer. So prayer is God's means by which you increase your love for God. You come into his presence. I mean, you know, when I was uh, young and uh, dating Nikki, I liked to spend a lot of time with her. And the more time you spend, the more things you share together, your love grows for that person. 
the same with God, isn't it? And if we're to keep our hearts from temptation, we need to spend time with him. We need to commune with him. We have to hear his voice, and then we need to respond with all our hopes and dreams and failures and everything else. Otherwise, we will fall into temptation. I've seen it in my own life. Those seasons of prayerlessness are not good seasons at all. They are ugly seasons. And God is, through prayer, hoping, He is desiring that His people would experience His love. I have never seen once that the more I pray, the less love I experience from God. You can test Him on that. The more time I have spent in God's presence in prayer, the warmer my affections have grown, not the cooler. And isn't that the great problem with so many of us throughout our day is we don't pray that much. We don't ache for God that much. Not like the ache you see in the apostolic church. It's clearly you see the primacy of prayer in, in that early church. You, you see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. They came back to the upper room, didn't they? And they went upstairs, and this is what the Word of God says. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And you might say, well, they were preparing for Pentecost. It was a unique moment. It, yes, granted, it was a unique moment. But it's still there for our instruction, Right? It might not be prescriptive, but it is descriptive, and that description is there for our edification. Not so that we would pray less. We don't need any help there, but rather so that we would pray more. And we see the pattern. These are men and women who are committed to corporate prayer, not just closet prayer, but corporate prayer, both. And, of course, we see that as the 3,000 are gathered on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Same text we talked about early this morning. They were committed to prayer. And of course, they prayed for what? After their beating and threats, they prayed for boldness, didn't they? They prayed a wonderful prayer of God's sovereignty over their situations. That God is sovereign. After being threatened with physical violence, they sang, God, you're good and you're sovereign. Over Pilate, over the Jews, over the Gentiles, over everything. Now empowers to speak with greater boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pour out your spirit. And God responded. Of course, we heard this morning that the apostles knew that they needed to commit themselves to prayer, didn't they? And to the ministry of the Word. Because it was being neglected. It was being neglected because of the burden of all these women who were in need of the ministry of the church. We see again prayer important in the commissioning and the sending off of saints to missionary service, to Barnabas and to Saul, who we know as Paul. And it says that in Acts chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. After, so after they had fasted and prayed,
prayed. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. It seems like everywhere hands are being laid on the bodies of those being commissioned to bring the gospel. The church is praying. The church is praying. And you find later in Acts, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas are going back through all the churches they had planted. And of course, some of those cities were a little dangerous to go back to because, you know, Paul got stoned at Lystra, right? So they're, they're going back to these cities. And this is what it says. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Again, the church is praying. And this is the story of the whole of God's Word. A church praying. I think of a young man named Epaphras who brought the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the Colossian church. That was not the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter of, of the, of, to Colossae, or the letter of Colossians, but it is Epaphras that appears to be the one who did the ministry. And this is what it says about Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. He's wrestling. Did you like that language? That's not passive prayer, is it? That's active prayer. That's like a Jacob at the Jabbok River wrestling with the angel of the Lord. But he's wrestling. What does this prayer life say of our, above our prayer life? Am, am I wrestling? Are you wrestling? Do we have a prayer life like this? Press praying for the church and the upbuilding of the church. Are we praying continually as we heard from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17? And of course, giving thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And often our thanks comes as a prayer, doesn't it? It's a prayer. And before that, it says rejoice always, probably also part of your prayers. So we're to be praying, rejoicing always in prayer, praying continually with all kinds of petitions and also giving thanks no matter the circumstance. It's quite an active church when it comes to prayer. A joyous, active, thanking church. And a church that believes in the power of prayer because James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Wow. That... that, that that's a little risky, isn't it? To confess our sins to each other and then to pray. You no, know, that's why the Roman Catholics have actually the confessional. It comes from actually this text. Whether you agree with that or not, that's where they get it from, that we need to confess our sins to one another and so that we can pray for one another as we are battling the evil one, the world and the flesh, because there is a real enemy and we know we engage with that real enemy and our own flesh and the world as we pray. Right? And as we pray for each other to fight the good fight of faith. And in fact, I need the prayers of the saints. You need the prayers of the saints. We 
all need the prayers of the saints to build each other up. Is there nothing, there's nothing more encouraging when a saint actually prays for you. Right there. In front of you. Or writes a prayer for you in a card. For you. Ministering to you. At that particular moment. And of course James not only says that we need to pray for each other as we struggle against sin. But also that we may be healed. That the, power, that the prayer of a righteous man, the prayer of a righteous woman is powerful and effective. Do we believe prayer is powerful and effective? It's a good question. Do I believe prayer is powerful and effective? The only way for me to test that is to see in my life that I pray continually, expectantly, that God would act. Because if I'm prayerless, I don't believe any of it. Because it's seen by one's fruit. So again, we're coming back to the pattern of prayer. I know we were looking at the primacy of prayer, but we're back to the pattern of prayer. And what is Jesus saying in this text to his disciples? I think one thing that we need to get clear is what not to do in prayer, right? Prayer is not a moment where you can toot your horn or you can make much of yourself like the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? They're the Pharisees. And in the ancient world, you were, be called, you were being called an actor. And if there was a greater shame to people who did not actually visit the theater, it was to the Pharisees. So it was an extra slam upon them that they were trying to make much of themselves before who? Who was their reward? Where was their reward? In the accolades of men, in the adoration of the Jewish people, in their respectability, in the tassels upon their prayer shawls. All of that was for them. But there's the other way not to pray. And that's just to pray in such a way that you think you can manipulate God by how many times you pray. That you keep on babbling like the pagans do. As Jesus says here, don't be like them. Don't use the incantation prayers thinking that you can somehow, by saying Jesus' name enough times, manipulate God. By the way, I see it all the time. And often you go to places in Africa, you'll see all these stickers and everything about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Some people believe that actually will protect their vehicle. That's the babbling I'm talking about. Because the God we pray to, can you manipulate him? That's the question. Can you manipulate the God you pray to? If you can, he's not God. What kind of a pathetic God is that? That can be manipulated by the whims of a man like me. Because I want it. I'm going to manipulate God. You see, it, 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 it sounds ridiculous, isn't it? The whole thing is meant to sound ridiculous as Jesus is teaching about the Lord's Prayer. So don't pray like that. Because here's the reality for those who are in Christ Jesus tonight. You already have fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. You already have access to Him. You don't have to babble. And whose opinion matters more, your peers or God? I hope it's God. Because it appears that's the central role. You see this wonderful text. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Those are the warm words, aren't they? 
There's a, there's a childlike awe and trust in these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, and we know that it is in Christ we have become God's adopted children. That's why we cry out, Abba, Father. You hear me pray about that all the time. Abba, Father, why can I do that? Because the Spirit inside me declares that I'm a child of the living God through Jesus Christ. I have been adopted into his family. Isn't that wonderful? And like the Roman way, to inherit all things with Christ. Because an adopted son was to inherit the inheritance of the Father. And we know that we inherit all things in who? Christ the Son. So this is a moment of great intimacy when I say, our Father in heaven. And what do I know when I say that? Our Father in heaven. I know that He loves me. Right? Because He became my Father because He showed the most incredible awe, awe just awesome love ever in the crucifixion of his son. Our Father, I know you love me. I know you sent your son for me. I know I've been grafted into him. I know I can say, Daddy, Daddy, Abba, Father. How wondrous is that as you enter this new year of 2024 that I can have this intimate communion with the creator of the universe who is holy, holy, holy because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the dwelling of the Spirit in me. Praise be to God. And the petitions, there are six of them. The first is, thy, uh, thy name be honored. Isn't that what it's saying? Hallowed be your name. Thy name be honored. And what it's saying is, help me, O God, to really know you. Help me to direct all my living to honor you. That's what this prayer is saying. Or us. Help us to direct all our living to honor you. And the second petition, your kingdom or thy kingdom come. Uh, this prayer is interesting because if you go to the catechism, catechism question answer 23, and it says this, it's basically your rule in me. Your kingdom come. May your rule in me come. May you rule over my heart. May you rule over my mind. Would you rule over my vocation? Would you rule over my family? Would you rule over my life? Rule over me. May your kingdom come. That's where it has to begin anyhow, doesn't it? It has to begin in you. And you also pray rule in the church. Oh, Heavenly Father, rule in us at second. Move among us so that Christ is king, really king, and it's seen in our actions it's seen in our confidence in the King that can do all things and works all things together for good. And of course, this petition goes further. Your rule in the world. Your kingdom come throughout all the nations until all the nations are reached and your kingdom comes in its fullness. Thus, your rule of eternal bliss to come. That's a lot of things praying in that little piece, isn't it? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I can't wait till you return, O oh Lord Jesus. When the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise. Oh, that's the day I yearn for. Make my heart ache for it. Make us, the church, ache for it. This is not our home. We have a kingdom that is to come. A kingdom without end. That should be our joy and delight. What's coming ahead of us. And so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha.
Through number three, your, thy will be done. What is simply that? Thy will be done in my life. Deny myself, take up my cross and follow me. Isn't that what I'm supposed to be? I need to follow Jesus. I need to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus. You can call it Christ conformity. But in many ways, this is it's a wonderful relief. <laughs> Leave your control at the altar of the, at the foot of the cross and say, thy will be done. Stop thinking you can control your children. Stop thinking you can control others at work. Stop thinking you have any control over your life because you don't. Because you, life is a breath. You can be here today and tomorrow you're gone. Thy will be done. It's freeing. Let the shackles fall off. Let the shackles fall off. Because whose will is better? Mine? I got such a puny, small, narrow view of, of God's will. I might think it's God's will and I'm completely, utterly wrong. God has a perfect perspective. I don't. That's why we say, your will, thy will be done. And the last three petitions, they're about needy, the needs of needy men. That's right. I love about this prayer is every single one of us, men and women, are needy. And it deals with those needs. Petition four, needs for daily living. I'm going to go through this quickly. We know that. Your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's good to remind us that every good thing comes from our Father in heaven, isn't it? Don't you and I need to hear that again? How many of you are quite forgetful? Oh, yeah, yeah, raise those hands. And spiritually, how many of you are quite forgetful? Oh, it should go up everybody's hand. We should put all four appendages up in the air and say, oh my, when it comes to spiritually forgetful, I am super that. That's why I need this prayer all the time. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our day, our day, this day our daily bread. Give us this day my daily bread. To be reminded of I'm so dependent, really, upon God and his provisions. So it becomes a prayer of reality, not just repetition. And of course, petition five, the need for forgiveness. All of us have a need to forgive. Jesus says, how many times ought you to forgive? Seven times? 70, 490 times. That's uh, just the metaphor, right? He's, he's trying to say, keep forgiving. We are desperately in need of forgiving. And why should you and I, for, why should you forgive? Why should you forgive? Why should you forgive and you? Why should any of us forgive? Because we've been forgiven. And what have you been forgiven? A debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Your debts with God, are they, much, are they far greater than that person you're holding a grudge against? Oh, beyond your wildest imaginations are your debts before God compared to the debts of another person against you. And we see very clearly, God forgives those who will forgive. Because if you don't forgive, right? If you and I, if we don't forgive, have we understood the gospel? Have we understood the marvelous grace of God that comes by faith and this too is a gift? You don't, do you? And if you don't understand the gospel of God's free grace, unmerited favor, of course you don't forgive. Of course you can't forgive because you don't understand the gospel. But if you understand the gospel, you will forgive. And of course, it's a wonderful way to be unshackled from this horrible prison called unforgiveness.
of which Jesus came to free us from it, to break the shackles of unforgiveness, to break the shackles of our sin upon the cross, so that even now, by the power of the Spirit, we have the power to, be, to forgive because we have been forgiven. And of course, the last is the need for deliverance from evil. The last part is to keep us from temptation. Protect me from the evil one. Oh, Lord, as I go out of my prayer closet, as I go out of the prayer chamber, protect me, keep me from temptation. May the the armor of God be upon me. May you defend me by the shield of faith from all the fiery darts of the evil one. Because I'm going out into the world to a hostile world to do battle. To do battle. And prayer is one of those things. It's God's walkie-talkie. It's an old term I remember hearing from John Piper. Prayer is God's walkie-talkie. Now, of course, we don't have walkie-talkies so much. That was a, a long time ago. We have cell phones right? Well, prayer is that. It's always, it's calling God up in the midst of every battle, in the midst of every moment of our day. And as I come to the end here about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are, who are desolate, blessed are those who see their great sin and yet see the magnificent love of God the Father for us, for us through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I know that every time I come to prayer, to the prayer closet that he talks about, that's in my office at home. Is that those moments are more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Prayer is about loving God. It's about responding to God's love and loving him back. Isn't that what it is? And so may this year, 2024, be a year in which you can say, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. As you pray more fervently and continually and joyously, giving thanks in all circumstances to the, to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Well, brothers